want you to close your eyes for just a moment and imagine some pictures that probably every one of you have seen over the last week or two. A picture of a mountain, not just an ordinary mountain, but a smoking, erupting volcano. The bubbling lava coming up, pouring out of great fissures, mowing through neighborhoods, pouring down into the sea in great torrents. You can open your eyes. I don't want you all to go to sleep. As a child growing up, I was fascinated by anything to do with science. I I dreamed about becoming a great explorer and an an inventor or a discoverer, and especially I wanted to be an astronaut. My mom, I'm sure, remembers this. And uh, when I was young, my family would take vacations. We would go through... of course, in the western United States is where we lived at the time, and, and we would get in the car and do a road trip and see the national parks. And I remember probably most vividly in my mind of all the trips that we took was the time that we went to visit Yellowstone National Park. And you know, there's something so unnatural about walking out on this boardwalk and seeing the, the, the landscape, the mud and the, the terrain just desolate and smoking and steaming and great pots of mud bubbling up and boiling and boiling just for no reason at all. And the steam and the sulfur gases, it seemed like another world. And then from time to time, you would see these great geysers. I remember going to Old Faithful and, uh, uh, of course, we expected it, you know, there because that's where we were going to see. But even still, it was uncanny to see this flat, surface looked like the surface of the moon and suddenly this huge spout of water and steam gushing out of the ground. Then it would go back and the, the still smell the, the smell of sulfur as the water was running back down into the place where it would go. Only a few minutes later to burst out again in this tremendous geyser. And I remember thinking and learning as a child from this vivid illustration and, and from the, uh, the things that I learned in my science textbook, that this world is not the world that we might think it is. This big ball is not a ball of rock. It is a ball of molten magma surrounded in a, an eggshell thin, comparatively, an eggshell thin layer of solid rock. But the mantle of the earth, which is only a few miles below our feet, is a, 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 a pliable, magma that that goes down for thousands and thousands of miles before you reach the center core of the earth. And over the last few weeks, we've all been reminded again, as we've seen these pictures coming from the big island of Hawaii, the, the latest eruption of Kilauea, this, this volcano now, uh, I have to remind you, and, and we've all been reminded, of course, if we've read the news reports, this volcano has been erupting now for as long as I have been alive, about 35 years. I'm not quite 35 years old, but I will be this in a few months. This volcano has been erupting since 1983. And we don't really hear much about it, but from time to time, it kind of overflows. It has a big eruption and fissures break open, and uh, we hear a lot about it. You know, it's interesting, and, and I don't say this because uh, I want to do any uh, derision of the people who live here, but when something happens for this long period of time, we kind of get used to it. People get used to seeing even a great smoking volcano. Uh, 
And people actually live here on this island, on the side of this volcano. They've built their homes here. They've planted their gardens here. It's a beautiful place. It looks like a paradise if you ignore the volcano. It's a beautiful place to live. And so we've seen now in the last few weeks these pictures of the, the lava and the magma flowing in, coming out of these fissures right up into our neighborhoods, flowing down the street, burning houses and power lines and everything in its path. Not only that, but these great fissures are, are spilling out noxious gases. So even if the houses weren't destroyed, many more are made completely uninhabitable because of these noxious and, and deadly gases that are pouring out. You know, I think, it, I can't help but wonder, is this not a solemn warning to any of us of a time that is coming when not just a small island, but this entire world will one day be destroyed by a lake of fire, a fire that perhaps is already burning beneath our feet. And yet, because we have not seen it with our eyes, because it had been so long in coming, we think perhaps that it won't really be. And I have to wonder too, I don't mean any offense to the people who, whose homes and property are destroyed by this, but I have to wonder, why would you build your house on the side of a volcano? I, I really had to ask myself that question. Didn't, couldn't you have seen, and, and by this I don't, I don't mean disrespect to the people, honestly. They've, they've lost their homes, they've lost everything they have, and my heart goes out to them. But, but why would you build your home on the side of a volcano when you can see the lava is coming up? You can see it pouring into the sea, and you know that all it would take is a little shift in those currents, those subterranean currents of lava, for it to come up in your own backyard and destroy your house. I have to wonder too, my friends, how many of us are living today, right now, in a false sense of security? How many of us realize the eternal dangers that we live within, in sight of, in our own lives? And yet, because they have been there for so many years, because nothing has happened out of the ordinary, we are lulled into a sense of complacency, a false sense of security with the lives that we live. And we have not taken for what they're worth the very real and mortal risks that we take. We have not taken them seriously. If you turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi, we read a frightful warning of the days coming upon us. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. My friends, the judgment of God is no laughing matter. The fires of hell are not something to joke about. And I know it's not a popular subject. I'd much rather stand here and talk to you about the love of God, about how much he wants to spend eternity with you. And yes, all of that is true. And I've talked time and time and time again about that. But my friends, the beauty and the reality of the gospel is, is set within the Bible on this backdrop, this dark backdrop of the reality of God's displeasure against sin, of God's nature of justice. 
And it's not because he's vindictive. It's not because he's an evil ogre waiting to roast someone over the fires of hell. But because of the inevitable result of our own choices. If we do not accept what he has done for us in the gift of his son, what choice will he have but to allow us to be destroyed by the inevitable coming justice, judgment, that he is going to mete out against sin. Some people might think, well, Adventists don't believe in hell. Now, that's partly true. I don't believe that the fires of hell are burning right now. I don't believe anyone is burning in hell at this moment. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But my friends, the Bible speaks of a lake of fire that's hotter than any hell imagined by Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. It's not a place where people burn and burn continuously for ceaseless ages of eternity. I don't find that in the Bible. No. God does not take pleasure in roasting the wicked for all of eternity. But the nature of God, his hatred of sin is so intense that ultimately he will be forced to destroy those who turn away from him. We read in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, the Lord says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? My friends, God says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does that mean the death of the wicked will not come? No. It is inevitable. But he says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die? Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 21. For the Lord shall rise up as Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act. His strange act. No, it is not like God to destroy anyone or anything. It is completely antithetical to his character to destroy someone. But that's why the Bible calls it his strange act. He will not allow his creatures to continue hurting and killing one another as we have seen play out in this world that we live in today, as Glenn was referring to a minute ago, the terrible and senseless killings, school shootings, you name, you name it, the senseless violence that happens for, on every side. People starving because their government, for whatever reason, is refusing to allow them to, to have food. For whatever reason, suffering, suffering, suffering on every hand. And my friends, suffering is the result of sin. And God will not allow suffering to go on forever. He will put an end to it. And sadly, sadly, some people will cling to sin so tightly that they will cease to exist at that time. 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat? 
My friends, the Bible teaches again and again and again that a day is coming, and it is very real, and it's coming very soon, when God will judge the earth in righteousness. And as the Apostle says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But what do we have to worry about? After all, we're Christians. We read the Bible. We come to church. We talk about Jesus. We pray. Our prayers are answered. We claim Bible promises. We read Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We read Romans 10.13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Besides, we live good lives. Surely, we know that God's judgment is going to fall on the world. But what is that to us? We're all going to heaven, right? Sooner better. Sooner the better. Bring it on. Bring it on. My friends, not so fast. Yes, this Bible that I read tells me the way to heaven. It has the steps marked out, but Jesus says it's a narrow path. Jesus shows us the way to salvation. Jesus is the way to salvation. But my friends, I fear that we must tread very carefully, very solemnly, when we open the pages of this book and look for the way to salvation. I fear that we must read very carefully, lest we find ourselves building our home on the edge of a great volcano. Building our home on sinking sand without calculating the risks. Because you see, my friends, the Bible is very clear that simply naming the name of Jesus is not enough to get a free pass to heaven. I've come across a particularly troubling passage in Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not an obscure passage in the Old Testament. This is not an exposition of one of the apostles. This is the words of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Whoa, wait there, pastor, I can hear you say, you're not trying to take away my assurance. No, my friends, I believe in having assurance. My friends, I couldn't stand here today without that assurance. Without, I couldn't have hope for tomorrow without the assurance of Jesus Christ that comes from knowing God and from abiding in his will. But my friends, I fear far too many of us as Christians may be taking the coming judgment of God far too lightly. I think it's too easy to assume that just because we call ourselves Christians, because we've had a great feeling at some time in the past, that we're, that we're on the inside, that we're, we have nothing to worry about. And I fear that if we presume upon the grace of God, we may be building upon the side of a great volcano. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's even stronger in the next verse. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. How many? It doesn't say. But even the possibility that there could be one who comes all the way up to the gates of heaven, all the way up to that great judgment day, only to find that they're not saved. It's enough to give me pause. And sadly, my friends, I fear that far too many Christian leaders could be compared to the unfaithful priests in the days of Jeremiah. We read here in Jeremiah 6, verse 14. Speaking of these unfaithful priests, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Friends, I don't like preaching about the coming judgment of God. I'd rather preach to you about his great love. I'd rather tell you how safe and secure you are and there's nothing in the world to worry about. I want to have assurance. I want to feel safe. But my friends, if the house is on fire, don't shut off your fire alarm. My friends, how many good and honest Christian people are still in a sincerely lost condition before God? It's not enough to just make an, a mental exercise to say, yes, I accept Jesus. I mean, that's good. We need to accept Jesus. Amen? Amen? We need to accept Jesus, but it doesn't go farther than that. Does it go farther than saying just the right words? Does it come into our hearts? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You see, the work of grace upon our hearts isn't just some, some ethereal transaction that takes place. The work of grace upon our hearts yields a fruit within our lives, a fruit of obedience. It's not complicated, my friends, but it's not magical either. First John chapter 2 and verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Paul writes to the believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that the, the day should overtake you as a thief. Friends, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear that this day is going to come and take us by surprise. You are all the sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, Paul says, he doesn't say go to sleep. You're all safe. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. My friends, how can we have safety? I didn't come here today to scare you. I didn't come here today just to tell you that God is out to get you because that's not the case. God is out to save you. That's why he gave you this book. That's why he sent his son to live here, to come and to warn this world that without him, there is certain destruction. But in Jesus Christ, there is certain life. 
We have no need to fear if we abide in him. Jesus gives another parable. And we don't have time to go into this, but I'll give you this as an assignment for reading. It's actually there in the same chapter that we were studying in Sabbath school, Matthew chapter 25. And we we touched on a lot of these uh, passages in Sabbath school. I won't go back over it. He's talking again and again and again in Matthew 24 and again in Matthew 25 about the end of the world, the end of the, the, the time and the coming judgment of God. Time and time and time again. In the very last verses of Matthew 25, he gives perhaps the most clear picture of the coming judgment of God that he ever gives in the Gospels. Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the goats on his right hand and the sheep on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is talking about this great judgment day. And yes, my friends, there will be two groups of people. I wish I could say there would be only one, only the ones on the right hand, but there will be two groups of people. What is the distinction? What is the difference between these two groups of people? He says to both of them, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then this group, this group of righteous people is surprised. Why? Why? When did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did all this happen? We didn't know. They were surprised. But because of God's presence abiding in their hearts, They ministered to him in the person of the sick and the needy when they knew it not. And to this group on the left, he says the same thing. Uh, In the negative, I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they said, Lord, when did we see you in all these circumstances and we didn't minister to you? Inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, my brethren. You did it not to me, Jesus says. My friends, there's coming a day of judgment. A day when those who did will be divided from those who didn't. Now, wait a minute, you say, isn't salvation by grace? Yes, my friends. I really believe that's the whole point. Because it's not so much what they did or didn't do that they knew that they were doing. We all know about the things that we know we're doing. It was those things that they did because of the indwelling character of Christ in their lives. That they did without even thinking about it. Or that they didn't do without thinking about it. That determined their character. That showed their true allegiance. That showed the foundation upon which their lives were built. Going back back to Matthew 7. In that same passage there, Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, 
And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. My friends, we can have assurance. We can have safety, but our only safety is in Jesus Christ. Not just in taking his name. Not just in saying we're Christians. Not just in associating with good Christian people or doing lots of good Christian things. But in accepting him into our hearts. In building our lives in relationship with him. Not by all the works that we can do, but according to his righteousness, he saved us. Not by keeping his commandments, although that's part of it. But in relationship with him, he works out his commandments in us. Friend, I ask you today, what will you choose? Will you choose to make your home on shifting sand? To find your own way? My friends, if you do, it's a risky choice. Or will you choose to build your life, build your house on the solid rock of Jesus Christ? Loving Father in heaven, Lord, it is a solemn time in which we are living. It can be frightening to think of the judgment soon to fall upon this world. But Lord, we claim your promises. Help us, Lord, to build upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, that our foundation may be sure, that our salvation may be secure in you, to build that relationship with you day by day, that nothing can break, that nothing can take from us. And Lord, may we claim your promise that you will never forsake in need the soul that trusts in you indeed.